Professor Richard Wolff is one of America's leading Marxist economists. He is a visiting professor in the Julian J. Studley Graduate Programs in International Affairs at the New School and Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is also the founder of the non-profit media Democracy at Work and the host of the weekly show Economic Update. His latest book, The Sickness is the System. When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, it's a collection of essays where he argues why there's a need for a new economic system that works for all. Our editorial board had the honor of interviewing him recently. We're excited to present to you the recording of the same. So in your 2011 paper, Teaching Economics Differently, um, you said that by comparing, contesting, you talk about how the lessons you learned from teaching economics over the years. And you pointed out that textbooks and courses lack in alternative, lack in offering alternative theories. So in the decade that has passed, have there been changes in the pluralism of economic theories in the curriculum and do they, and or do they encourage them against each other? Okay, I, I wish I could give you better news than I have to give you in answer to this perfectly good question. Um, economics is a backward discipline and it has been all my life. And as I said, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. Then I went to Stanford in California where I got a master's degree. And then I finished my education at Yale. So by American standards, I am an, a product of the elite of the elite universities in this country. And my PhD is in economics. Uh, I spent 10 years, if you count the full time from my beginning at Harvard to my PhD at Yale, I spent 10 years of my life in the Ivy League schools of the United States studying economics. Only during one semester, that's, it, it, our universities have a two semester system. So if you're in there for 10 years, it's 20 semesters. And I took no break, so I did my 20 semesters in a row. Only in one of the 20 semesters was I introduced to works that were in any sense critical of capitalism. For the rest of my, and that was, I was at Stanford. I had a teacher, if you ever get a chance to read his works, uh, he's long dead, but his name was Paul Baran, B-A-R-A-N. Uh, by the way, one of his specialties was the economics of economic development. You might find it interesting. I certainly did. He was a wonderful teacher. In one semester, I had that. The other 19 semesters, I would describe as following. They had two purposes. Number one, to teach me how to explain and express what was going on in economics in such a way that the vast majority of people I would be talking to would have no idea what I was saying. In other words, I learned to be mathematical, I learned to be technical, I learned to be abstract in a way that made economics a mystery and would turn most people away from pursuing it because 
it was either arcane or technical. If they were interested in technical, they'd go off and be an engineer. Why, why do this with economics? So that's the first thing I discovered. The second thing I discovered was that they weren't interested in teaching me how an economy works. That wasn't what they were doing. What they were teaching me was how to be a cheerleader for capitalism, how to think about capitalism in a way, and I'm assuming you know some of this word, this language, that capitalism was a system that went to a stable, unique equilibrium that was Pareto optimal, if you know what that crazy language is. Look at the words, equilibrium. There is no such thing. Unique, there's no such thing either. And optimal, that's an arrogance that you shouldn't take seriously. But it's very important to know that the words are designed to get you to understand you are a cheerleader. You are a celebrant. It's like being introduced into some religious institution as the minister or the priest or the whatever um, who, who explains to people how you get to heaven or to God or to whatever your religion uh, celebrates. It's so grotesque in the United States that long ago, the business community said to the university, look, we're very happy that you are making people think that capitalism is the greatest thing ever invented by the human mind. But you're not helping us by having young people who come to us understanding how a business works, which is what we need. So the solution in the United States was to create a second economics department, parallel to the first one. The first one, which is what I'm the product of, is the celebrator. The one who says, here's the ways capitalism is fantastic. You know that famous uh, Robert Browning poem, capitalism is magnificent, let me count the ways. And your education is counting the ways. This other parallel economics department is called a business school. A business school. What do you do in a business school? Well, you study business. And what do you think business is? It's the economy, you idiot. Why do we have two departments of economics? We don't have two departments of history or two departments of English or two departments of biology, but we have two departments of economics. One, you go to study how the economy works. How does a business actually work? What is marketing? What is accounting? What is investment theory and policy? I have taught in business schools. But that's not where my primary activity was. It was in the economics department. And in the economics department, you're there as a high priest. Your job is to teach people to love capitalism and to believe it's the best. And everything else is inferior. It's less efficient. All kinds of, and, and, and pardon me now, but I, I assume you want my honesty. It is junk. This is, this is what Marx called vulgar economics. Let me give you an example. We are required to teach the concept of efficiency. The concept of efficiency is a 
ridiculous enterprise. Let me explain. Every act in economics, buying something, selling something, raising an interest rate, lowering an interest rate, investing over here, anything in economics that happens generates a whole long series of consequences. Some of them happen immediately, some of them happen next year, some of them happen 10 years down the road. Think of it, a higher interest rate, a lower interest rate, a higher investment rate, a rate of inflation, anything. How do you know that whatever decision you made to raise an interest rate, to invest over here, to buy this, to sell this, how do you know that it was efficient? Answer, you look at the consequences and you measure the consequences that were positive and the consequences that were negative. And if the ones that were positive are greater in some than those that were negative, you say it was an efficient act, okay? Sometimes this is called cost-benefit analysis. I'm assuming you've been introduced to it. You know something about this. This is charming. It's just no human being can do that. No human being ever has done that. You can't do that. That's crazy. That's like telling me that you've spent a number of years studying how to leap over tall buildings. I'm here to tell you, you can practice till you're blue in the face. You're not going to jump over a tall building. That's not available. And you're not going to measure costs and benefits either because it's equally unavailable. Why? Two reasons. One, many of the consequences of any act happen in the future and you don't know the future. So don't tell me you can measure the costs and benefits from the consequences because you can't do that. No one has ever done that. That's childish. Here's the second problem. Any consequence you point to from any act that you're studying is never the consequence only of the act you're studying. So for example, if interest rates go up and six months later exports go up, can you infer that the reason the export went up is because you can't, you know that from, if you've ever studied statistics, you can't do that. Correlation is not causation. You remember, you learned that. Well, the logic is, the reason for that is that the rise in exports has 50 other causes alongside whatever you're studying. So you can't say that X was an effect of what you're studying because it was the effect of a lot of other things. Measuring costs and benefits is something no one can do. It's make-believe. To use a technical term, it's bullshit. That's a very important word in American English. Bullshit is a wonderful word because it covers this sort of thing. And yet, and yet I was required to sit through several semesters of instruction by a very smart set of, of teachers who taught me how to conduct cost-benefit analyses. And if I were a more greedy person than I am, I could make more money today doing cost-benefit analysis for people who will pay me than to be a professor.
but this has exactly the same standing as a truth than going out into the middle of the woods, taking off all your clothes, looking up at the sky, and saying the following 10 words very quickly, and then that will transform your life. If you believe what I just said, then you should study cost-benefit analysis. Capitalism isn't efficient, not because it's, it's inefficient, but because that is a make-believe concept. It has no content logically or analytically. It is a religious way of suggesting that something about capitalism is superior. And that's the job of economics. And it was very hard to do. So they invented the make-believe of efficiency in order to substantiate the idea that capitalism is in some way efficient. Let me close with this example. When I was younger, I was tempted because I, I'm married, I have two children, and you know, you don't make enough money as a professor in this country to really take care of your kids, particularly because uh, college education for my two children was very expensive. So I would occasionally do a cost-benefit analysis for some company. And I remember the first time I did it, large corporation, I won't mention the name because you've heard of it, okay? So we went in and I spoke to the vice president who hired me and two other economists and an accountant and a lawyer to make a report. Was it efficient to invest in the such and such? And we met with him and in the course of the hour that we met to discuss this project, it became very clear to us what he wanted the report to say. He's a businessman. He's not interested in objective science. He found the idea funny. We were naive academics. We took that crap seriously. So he explained to us, this is the study he wanted us to do, and this is the conclusion he wanted us to reach. After the thing was over, and we got to know him a little bit, there was an occasion when we all were in a hotel and we went to the bar and we had drinks and we probably had a bit too many. And so I asked him and I said, you know, it was a little strange for us to hear you tell us that we were to do an examination and we were to find out this result. And he looked at me and he said, let me explain. He was much older than I was. So he explained, let me explain to you, young man, he said, what's going on here. I'm an executive. I have to make a decision. Will our company invest a million dollars to build a branch factory in Hyderabad, for example, or not? I have to make that decision. And I'm very worried. If I say, yes, let's do it, and it doesn't work, I'm not going to get promoted in this business. I'm going to be blamed for having a bad, made a bad decision. And likewise, if I say don't invest and our competitor builds a factory in Hyderabad and does well with it, I will be in trouble. So I have to make a decision which I've already made to make the investment. But I need a report 
so that if the investment doesn't work out well, and they call me in and say, hey, why did you tell us to do something that didn't work? I want to be able to say, oh, no, no, it's not just me. I had these Harvard and Yale specialists, and they wrote a report. And that way, the chances that I will be fired are lower than if I don't have the report. In other words, he was saying to us Harvard-Yale fellows, no women in those days, didn't have that yet. We were being told we are window dressing. This whole exercise is bullshit. He needs it to cover his rear end in case things don't go well for him. That's what we were there for. Research, don't be silly. Truth, who cares? This is about, and that's what it's for. And you shouldn't have any illusion. But I warn you, your teachers live in that illusion. Economics in the United States is as lopsided today as it was when I went to school. Despite the crisis of capitalism that I'm talking about, despite movements against capitalism that are stronger today than at any time in my life in the United States, it is now possible in the United States to talk openly about socialism. For most of my life, that was impossible. Most of my life, that was impossible. You start talking about socialism, people stop listening to you. They're frightened. They don't want to go there. They are In economics, it's still like that. In the United States today, the overwhelming majority of departments of economics in colleges and universities teach neoclassical economic theory exclusively, nothing else. In many of these departments, you cannot get a job if you are a Keynesian economic uh, economist. You can't. In those places where you can, and there are places where Keynesians can get a job. And then they fight with each other, the Keynesians and the neoclassicals endlessly going back and forth. And one of the very few things that the neoclassicals and the Keynesians can agree on is the need to exclude Marxists. So those are even scarcer. You would never, let me be clear with you, you would never have heard of me if I didn't go to Yale and Harvard. I am, I am able to function in the United States despite my being interested in Marx, not because of it. And the reason I have an audience is much more that Americans are intimidated by the prestige of the Ivy League. They don't know what to do with me. I'm one of them and then something went wrong. Maybe when I was a very small child, my mother dropped me on the floor and something went wrong with my head. They don't know quite what to do. To give you an example, in my class at Yale, my classmate was they were overwhelmingly male, but there were two women out of about 40 men. One of the two women in my group was a woman named Janet Yellen. She's about to become the, the Secretary of the Treasury, and she used to be the head of the Federal Reserve. 
During my time as a graduate student at Yale, we formed a left-wing economics association. We were so disgusted with the American Economic Association, the AEA, which is the dominant professional organization for economists here in the United States, that we formed something called the Union of Radical Political Economics, URPE, U-R-P-E. It produces its own journal, it still exists. But it was in formation when I was a graduate student and I participated in helping to form it, as did a whole group of uh, economists. Janet Yellen was no way involved. She could, could be less in, she kept away from our effort as if we were uh, lepers and getting anywhere near us, she would risk becoming infected or something. She has never done anything remotely critical of capitalism in her life. She's married to another uh, economist um, who has the same politics. These are exactly what Joseph Biden would choose because they are like Joseph Biden, except they're not male. Uh, other than that, very similar. Uh, she is the product of this kind of an education. She cannot think about an alternative to capitalism because no one ever entered her life in any way as a teacher, as a colleague, as a fellow professor who was systematically able to say, look, I think there's another way of organizing an economy. Here is the way it looks like. What about this? maybe the problems of capitalism can't be solved within capitalism and need a change. You know, like the problems of slavery couldn't be solved by having a nicer master. You have to get rid of the slavery. Or you can't solve the problems of feudalism by urging the Lord to be nicer to his serfs. You're not gonna solve the problems of capitalism by asking the employer to pay the workers better. This is not the way it works. You solve the problems of a system by at least being open to the idea that maybe the system needs to be changed. Nobody that Mr. Biden has with him, and I know at least half of the individuals on his economic team personally, they have no clue. And it, they're very smart people, has nothing to do with their capability, but they have no exposure to this. They never had it as students, they never had it as colleagues, and they don't have it in their minds. They've not read the material, they've not debated this idea, nothing. They come in like innocents. They are going to make capitalism work better. That's who they are. And they were trying to do that for Mr. Obama. Half of the people Mr. Biden has chosen are academics from the same environment I live in. I know what they know. They don't have any clue other than to make capitalism better. The other half are people held over from the Obama administration. They were likewise the same people. Obama put Yellen at the head of the Federal Reserve. It's the same people. 
they were making capitalism work better too. And the success they had is what enabled Donald Trump to become president. So if you expect something different from Mr. Biden, it requires that you have no idea what the reality is here. The only hope for economics is the new generation of young people coming into the profession now. Those people have been shaped by the crisis of 2008 and by the crisis we're in now. They are dissatisfied with the absurdities of neoclassical and Keynesian economics. And they are fighting lonely battles that you'll never hear about in the, in the classrooms or across this country with the help from a few older people like me. And that's gonna change the profession, but that's gonna take time. Thank you so much, sir. Do you have time for one more question or are you done? Like? No, let's do one more. <laughs> okay, great. Sakshi, do you want to ask Harita's question? Um, so, sir, there has been an influx of people who've begun to view Marxism as an equality of opportunity as opposed to, you know, associating it with specific theories of Marx or Lenin. So, like, what do you think about this? Why do you think this has happened and why do you think people often, you know, skip over the nuances of traditional Marxist theory? Well, you know, good question. Complicated kind of answer. Um, part of the problem is, I guess best put this way. Marxism, <coughs> as you know, if you go back to the basic literature of Marx and Engels and those folks, <coughs> at that point, socialism was a critique of capitalism. I assume you all know that Marx did not write about communism, ever. He didn't write much about socialism. And what he did write, you know, a pamphlet like Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, was really a critique of capitalism, as capital itself, the book, was, is. Um, it was only with the Paris Commune, one little moment in Marx's life, that people like him, socialists, were able to take power in a society. And in this case, the society of a city, the city of Paris in France. And it only lasted a few months, by the way, very, very important event, if you've never read about it. 1870 Paris Commune, read about it. Marx was absolutely fascinated. He was in London across the channel, but he, he and his people were active in the Paris Commune. It was the only moment in his life where you might have had uh, a chance to and I'll use the word loosely, apply his thinking to the question of organizing, or better, reorganizing a society. And it only lasted a few months, but Marx devoted huge amounts of time and energy to analyze what had happened, what the communards in Paris had achieved, and what terrible mistakes they had made. And if you read his the civil wars in France and the pamphlets he wrote, 
you'll see he was as interested in what they achieved to build on as he was in understanding the terrible mistakes he, he saw them having made that we should never repeat. One of the people who studied Marx's writing on the Paris Commune the most was Lenin. And Lenin's pamphlets about the conditions in Russia refer to which of the lessons Marx got from the Paris Commune applied to the new situation in Russia when the revolution enabled them to become the second effort or experiment in how to apply Marxian uh, theories. So I look at the Soviet Union from 1917 revolution to 1989 collapse as a major experiment in applying Marxist thinking. And that experiment showed very great achievements we should build on, but it also, like the Paris Commune, showed us terrible mistakes and failures that we need to learn not to repeat. If, if things happen in a rational way, that's what would have happened. And we would have a rich literature that you and I could use of Marxists looking at the pros and the cons, the successes and the failures, in order to learn better lessons for what we could then do in places like Vietnam or Cuba or the People's Republic of China or North Korea, etc. However, the Cold War intervened. And in, under the conditions of the Cold War, the failures and mistakes in the Soviet Union became the dominant narrative of the United States. And the successes and achievements obliterated, denied. Let me give you an example. If you look at the growth of GDP, this number that economists take so seriously, a, a rough measure of the total quantity of goods and services produced each year in an economy. If you take a look at GDP as a reasonable index of whether an economy is growing or not, then the fastest growth of GDP in the 20th century was that achieved by the Soviet Union. And the fastest growth of GDP in the 21st century is that achieved by the People's Republic of China. All UN documents show you that. You don't have to take my word. I'm not making something up. But when I say to my American audiences what I just said, it takes me an hour to persuade them because their brains can't do that. And that's not their fault. This is not, I'm not, I mean that. It's not, I'm not criticizing them. This is the way they were brought up. This is the way this country functioned. Look, I mentioned to you before, there are no, you know, there's a handful of Marxists teaching in the United States. Where are you going to learn any of this? The rest of the people are not neutral. They're people who grew up in the Cold War. They either know nothing about the Soviet Union or China, or they live in a world of hostility and denunciation, and they, and they just, they're not interested. 
So I have to really work. Let me give you another example that isn't so stark. My family is French. My, my, my mother tongue and my mother was born in Berlin. I speak German, I speak French. So I follow events in France and Germany. So I explained to my students that in France and Germany, I pick France usually because Americans feel somehow closer to France. So I pick France. I say in France, the law requires that the minute you graduate from high school and take a job, your employer must give you, by law, five weeks paid vacation. Paid vacation, you must be paid exactly the same as the weeks when you work. You get five. Here in the United States, you don't get five weeks paid vacation after 20 years of service. There is no law in this country mandating paid vacation, none. Most workers don't get anything like that ever in their lifetimes. I, I need an hour to persuade my students that I didn't just make this up. I have to bring them in. UN documents, OECD documents. I have to show them over and over, and they finally get it. And then you should see their faces. They're so sad because of course now they have to ask themselves this awful question. Why didn't I know this? Why did my mother and father never tell me this? Then I tell them that in France, you have a medical insurance from the day you're born until the day you die. And if you get sick, you go to a doctor and no one asks you to pay for anything. They look at me, it takes me another hour to explain that. Then I tell them that in Germany today, if you want to go to a university, it is free. There are no fees. There is no tuition. Seven countries in Europe have this. The Germans go out of their way. Not only is it free for a German, it's free for anyone. There are 20,000 Americans that have gone to Germany to get their college degree because they cannot afford it in the United States. My students look at me because they're all now deeply in debt. And I explain to them the Germans don't have debts for going to college. You do, but they don't. This is too difficult. It's too difficult. It's in a kind of struggle. So here's the problem. The association Americans have, and I'm assuming it's in many other parts of the world. The association is Marx, Russia, China, Stalin, evil, bad, don't go there. And I could say it all in fancy academic language, but you understand what I'm saying. And nobody has shown them that there's another part of the tradition you might be interested in. There's a critical analysis of capitalism. By far, the most developed tradition of criticism of capitalism that exists in the world is Marxism. Is everything that Marxism says right? Of course not. Are there people who are Marxists who tell to do crappy work? Of course there are. But if you want a developed tradition 
which has a number of really profound insights, whether they're from Marx or Engels or Lenin or Trotsky or Georg Lukacs or Rosa Luxemburg or a long list of others, including quite a few from India. That famous family, which I grew up reading, Dutt, D-U-T-T. I don't know uh, whether they're still, but this was an Indian uh, scholar who was a Marxist, did wonderful work. Uh, E.P. Dutt, D-U-T-T. Anyway, um, my point really is here that it's our job, my job, your job, I hope, to read the Marxian literature and to get from it the critique. Here's how I make the argument here in the United States. I say to my students, suppose you were given an assignment by a professor to write an analysis of a family that lived up the street from you. All you knew was there was a mother and a father and two children. And you knew a little bit that one of the two children thought that the family was a wonderful family, was deeply grateful that he or she had been born into this family and had gained so much. But the other child thought of the same family as a psychological basket case and that it was uh, crazy and that the best thing they could do was get as far away from this family as soon as possible for their mental health. All right, now you have to write a paper about this family. Would you talk to only one of the two children? My answer, you know, I say to the students, I'm sure most of you are smart enough to know that would be a very weird way to write a paper. You need to talk to both of them. Then you draw your own conclusion, having listened, having asked questions, but you don't talk to one. If you want to understand capitalism, by all means, read the people who love it. By all means. But also read the people who don't. And then draw your own conclusions. In the United States, let me be really clear with you. We have never, in my lifetime, and you can tell from my white hair, I've been around a while. In my lifetime, nothing like that has ever been done in any school of, of uh, education. Not in the elementary school, not in the high school, not in the college, not in the university. I've taught in half a dozen American universities. Nothing like that has ever been dared to be done in my lifetime. There is no way. How did I learn Marxism? By myself. I went with other interested students and we got the books and we got the pamphlets and we discussed it amongst ourselves. We did, we made up our own education because we understood the horribly unbalanced lopsided education that we got. And let me assure you, before being an economist, I was a mathematician. I'm not intimidated by the arithmetic. I can assure you that the Marxist tradition is a very well worked out, very sophisticated analytical body of insights. Is everything it says right? No, no. Does it have empty spaces, missing arguments, 
mistakes. Sure it does. All traditions do. So does the neoclassical, so does the Keynesian. But the Marxian is fundamentally different because its approach is critical. It doesn't think capitalism is the end of human development. It thinks that you can do better than capitalism. It used to be difficult in the United States for me to say we can do better than capitalism. I am happy to tell you that when I say that now in the United States, students are irritated because they say to me, of course we can, we already know that. We want you to help us figure out where we go from here, how, what it should look, what, what needs to be done. But to defend capitalism, I watch my colleagues of a lifetime struggling more and more to try to come up with defenses. And if you want me to be honest with you, I enjoy their difficulty.